All right, today I am uh, kind of coming in towards the landing zone with this series. We're going to be completely finishing up next week and the week after that we're starting with a brand new series on hearing God, which I don't know about you, but I think there's a lot of room and a lot of value for us in actually learning to discern and, and become more confident in actually sensing God's promptings and His leadings. But what I wanted to take a look at today and next week, it's two parts of or two halves of uh, of the same equation or two sides of the same coin, is taking a look at what is arguably the greatest theme throughout this book of Peter that we've been looking at. It's a small letter written to a group of Christians that have been dispersed, they're being persecuted, and, and really the overarching theme is that they are struggling. There are struggles, they are suffering, there's persecution. Um, we, we read about how, how wives are, are in situations where they are demeaned and um, treated as less than, um, even addressing slaves that are in very unjust situations. So, so, so there are different challenges and, and struggles, uh, even addressing how, how his readers would respond to civil authorities, whether they were reasonable or not. So, so there are different examples throughout this letter. And what I'm wanting to do in a very practical, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping, hope, I'm hoping not to complicate it, I'm hoping to simplify how we deal with struggles in our lives. And today I'm especially wanting to take a look at the sources of those struggles. Sometimes we attribute the blame, or we attribute the responsibility to some of the wrong role players, as opposed to actually recognizing where these struggles come from, where the challenges come from. Before I get into that though, let me start with the end of the book. In 1 Peter 5 verse 12, the second half of that verse, Peter makes it clear, this is my purpose. He says, my purpose in writing is to encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. He's saying, I wanna encourage you. It is tough, it is challenging, there are obstacles, there is opposition, but I wanna encourage you to stand firm. What, what, what you're dealing with, he's writing to followers of Jesus, he's saying there is grace for you. God, God is aware, he is paying attention, he will carry you through that. And so, depending on the kinds of challenges you face, or if you're anything like me, sometimes the, you actually experience deeper pain when you're seeing other people suffer. When you're looking at other people that you care about, people, people that you have compassion towards and you're seeing them as victims of injustice or victims of unfair treatment, it can be, it can be really, really painful. It can be really, really hard. And so as we wrestle over some of the sources, some of the causes, I wanna make very clear what it is not. It is not that God doesn't care. God cares. Peter, earlier in that same chapter, says in chapter five, verse seven, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. It's such a short verse. We could easily, if you're reading through the letter, kind of skim over it and just move on. But I don't think it's accidental that Peter's put this in there. He's saying to people that are struggling, that are suffering, that are facing forms of injustice or persecution, he's saying, whatever you think it is, it's not that God doesn't care. You can give him your worries and your cares. He cares about you. And I have to go further and say, this doesn't matter whether we feel it or not. We're, there are times where we're gonna sense God's presence and his care, and there are times where you're gonna feel numb. You're gonna feel as though God is distant, as though he is unconcerned, insensitive. But truth is truth, and I'm gonna try and explain in a few moments why it is so important for us to hold on to some of these truths. Why it is so important to be anchored in 
these truths. So that's verse seven. Then he goes on straight away from, hey, know that God cares about you, into the very next verse where he says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Looking for someone to devour. Now, in case this is your first time in church and you're thinking, holy smokes, is this what they do every week? They talk about the devil. The answer is no, but I do want to explain with a little bit of context why it is that I think we need to be aware, why we need to be alert, why we need to be forewarned and forearmed, because I really do believe that we live in a world where there's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness. When, when, when the enemy or the devil is referred to, and, and if I use terms like the enemy, I'm not just referring to, to the one person that is sort of heading up this army of darkness, it's, it is also the armies of darkness. So generally, if someone is, is making reference to or thinking about being attacked or being tempted by or, or being distracted by the enemy, chances are it's not the enemy in terms of the devil. I, I want to be clear that he's not like God in that he's all-powerful, all-present, and all-knowing. He's not. He's a created being. He can only be in one place at one time. He, he, he has limits to his power, and, and he, he doesn't know everything. He can't read your mind, just so you know. That's good news, by the way. Some of you are looking like there's bad news. That, that's good news. But, but having said that, I do think that there are billions of fallen angels, demons, powers of of darkness, whatever, you want to, whatever terminology you want to use. And so when we're referring to the enemy, it is kind of some form of representation there. Just for a few moments, before I try and draw a picture to give you some perspective, and no, it's not going to qualify me for Novo's Got Talent, but, but hopefully it'll give us some, some perspective. John Marcoma wrote a brilliant book called Live No Lies. Live No Lies. And in it, he makes reference to what has traditionally been known as kind of the, the three enemies of the soul, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. I'll elaborate a little bit more on that in a moment with a picture. But he's basically making reference to the fact that, that there are these different influences, these different things that we have to battle against. The world being society and culture at large and, and how a lot of the time it normalizes things that are not actually best for us and not God's will for our lives. The flesh being our humanity, our own natural disordered desires, which we all have, by the way. It's, it's like it just is what it is. But then also the devil, and again, as I say, that he represents a, a larger force, as it were. And so, and so we, we will have influences from the fact that we just live in a fallen world. We, we also have a nature that is not perfect. That, that'll happen the other side of eternity. And... On top of it, we actually have a spiritual enemy. Or to put another way, some of the sources of our struggles are our choices, people's choices, our enemy, which I've touched on, and God's will. I'll say that again. Our choices, others' choices, our enemy, God's will. In other words, some of the struggles that we're experiencing, not all of them by any means, but some of them are self-inflicted in the sense that they are choices that are made. And so there are consequences attached to choices, right? If, if you've ever been in school, you know this to be true. If you study and do your homework, you tend to do better. If you don't, you tend to do worse, unless you're one of those people that we all hate, and you were just amazing no matter what, and you could come to school in a trick, 
and ask what exam we're writing, and we say it's maths, and you still get an A, and you head boy, and you, you know, got accepted into medical school, and I have no issues whatsoever with <laughs> this old friend of mine. Um, but for most of us, for most of us, uh, you see consequences that are directly attached to, to choices that we make. When we make a choice to betray someone, trust gets broken. I have to own the fact that I made a choice. There are choices that we suffer the consequences of. But then, but then, you can be completely innocent, and there are other people that make choices that you suffer the consequences of. Someone goes through a red traffic light and, and drives into you. That was out of your control. You are experiencing the consequences of someone else's choices. If you've ever been the victim of any kind of abuse, you have had to suffer the consequences of other people's choices. And there's nothing about that that is okay. Now, when, I'm, when I make reference to our enemy, I would say that a lot of the time he's also behind our choices and other people's choices. He's behind greed. He's behind materialism. He's behind exploitation. He's behind division and, and, and gossip and bitterness. And so, so, so I'm not saying that, it's, that it all just originates with us, but we have a choice. And then sometimes we experience the consequences of other people's choices. We have an enemy. Fourth is that sometimes it is God's will. Now, I want to be very clear, and, and I do think that sometimes we attribute to God what was actually the enemy. Sometimes we make God, we actually describe him and view his characteristics, we're actually describing Satan. And so, and so I want to be very careful that, that it is clear that God is in no way uncaring, unkind, unsympathetic, lacking in compassion, and causing wars, and causing um, family to hurt one another. I'm not, I'm not describing any of that, but I am saying that there are times in our lives where God is deliberately actually putting us into a situation where there is some heat, where, where, some, where some stuff in us that needs to come out comes to the surface so that he can actually scrape it off, in a sense. This is, this is what James makes reference to in the first few verses of the short letter of James in the New Testament. He says, he's, he's actually saying celebrate, like consider it a pure joy when you suffer trials of many kinds because we will mature. So again, if you're a parent, and a semi-decent one at least, you're gonna make your kids go to school. You're not being kind if they wake up in grade three and they're like, oh, I really don't wanna go to school, mom. Oh, Shame. And we just want to hug, and we want to reassure, and it's okay. You can stay home. Is that loving your child? Well, and you do that again the next day, and the next day, and the next day. You, you're being a friend to their feelings, not to their future. That's not loving your child well. A, a parent who loves their child will make them go to school, will, will insist that they take responsibility for those things that are their responsibility. That is, that is you... Forcing your child to mature, to, to grow. And I'm saying in the same way, there are times where God is deliberately, strategically designing or allowing us to go through circumstances that are actually going to mature us, that are going to toughen us up, that are going to increase our capacity, our resilience. And the good news is that if you are a follower of Jesus, 
even if the source, even if the origin is the enemy, God still wants to use it for good. He still has to allow it. If you are a follower of Jesus, just to be very clear, I don't want anyone walking out of here with fear if you're in a relationship with God. If you're in a relationship with God, the enemy cannot do anything to you without God's permission. Which means that if God is giving him permission, if God is allowing him to tempt or to cause harm, it's because he's actually wanting something good to come out of it. All right, let me try and draw this to give us a little bit more perspective, all right? This is my incredible artwork. This is, that's actually quite a good circle. Hey? It's a lot better than the first service. I'll just sign this quickly for whoever wants to hang on to this later on. So, so this, is, this is the world, right? Okay, or, or, or earth. Um, this part I really didn't do so well earlier on. Oh, boy. Okay. Anyone have any idea what that is? Thank you. Okay, okay. Looks like a, what's that dangly thing on the back of our throats? What do you call that? Hey? Okay, I don't know what that is. What did you call it? Epiglottis. Here we go. Here we go. There we go. There we go. Epiglottis. All right. Sorry, guys. This is Africa. Okay, this is Africa. This was meant to be the horn of Africa, but, but I think that's... Anyway. All right. So this is the world. Okay? Now, stick with me. I, I, I know I'm going to be simplifying this significantly, I just want to give you some background that this is on the back of years and years and years, personally, of wrestling over, struggling over, feeling pain over, pain in the world, and trying to manage tension of why, and why would God allow, fill in the blank, and what about, what about, what, and where does the devil fit in, and what about God's control, all that. So, so this is an oversimplification of years of trying to understand and put some things into perspective. When Adam and Eve sinned, because they had a choice, right? Free will. There is no love without free will. If I'm trying to dominate or control someone, just to be clear, that's not loving. Love invites, creates opportunity, but there's a choice. God gave Adam and Eve a choice. When they chose to mistrust him and to give in to the temptation of the serpent, represented by the, the devil represented by the serpent, they, they actually allowed a certain level of authority into the world to the devil. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, in fact, we'll read this in Luke chapter 4, verse 5, the devil takes him out, tempts him with a bunch of stuff. One of them we find in verse 5. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please, I will give it all to you if you will worship me. Side note, please don't think that just because there's success or fame or influence, that is always God. I want to point out that Jesus doesn't correct him and say to him, this isn't yours to give. There's another part in the Bible where he's referred to as the prince of the air. The temptation is that he was offering Jesus a shortcut that would save him pain and sacrifice. He was saying to him, if you will worship me, I'll give you all the king. Because he knew that Jesus' mission is to bring freedom to the world. So he's like, okay, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus knew that there could be no freedom 
for the world without his suffering and his death. So the temptation was a shortcut towards glory. He doesn't correct him. The point I'm trying to make is that Satan has an enormous amount of authority and influence in the world. I do want to be clear that God is outside of all of this. No, I'm not going to be able to describe the universe and everything else. But God is outside of time. God is outside of creation. Everything we know and see was created. The enemy was created. We're actually living in a world where there is, spiritually speaking, an enormous amount of darkness. This surprises us. This freaks us out that that's even possible. But it should surprise us less when we realize just how much pain, just how much evil, just how much self-centeredness there is in the world. That's the bad news. The good news is that as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I always feel like I have to qualify that because it's not just this is your philosophy that you kind of lean towards. I'm very sorry. This is not just you tick the box or you kind of, yeah, Jesus, I've got no problem with Jesus. No, no, to be, a, to be a Christian, to have what I'm about to describe as a level of protection means that your life is given over to him. You have surrendered your life to God. Not perfectly. No one does that this side of eternity. But we are trying. We, we are trying to trust him. We are trying to honor him. We're trying to obey him. And so as Christians, you are protected. Yes, there is darkness. But the exceptions are people that have placed their trust in Jesus. And in that case, Satan does not have authority over you. He cannot make you do anything. Can I say that again? He cannot make you do anything. He can try and influence. He can try and tempt. He can try and deceive, which I'm going to look at in a moment. But he cannot make you do anything if you have surrendered your life to Jesus. We celebrate that when we do baptisms and we engage in the symbolism of your, your old person being buried with Christ as you go under the water and as you come up out of the water, it symbolizes this resurrection to life, this new spiritual life, which means that the power of the enemy is broken over your life. I don't say that lightly. I, I deal with people's pain constantly. There is enormous compassion, enormous empathy. But I have to have hope, and I do, I have hope that if, if we will try and grow in trusting our lives to God, accepting His forgiveness, which is free, we cannot add anything to it, and choosing to follow Him. Guys, it matters that the power of sin is broken. The power of darkness is broken. That doesn't mean that we don't still fail and make mistakes, but it means that we are no longer helpless. We actually have the protection of and the strength of God. Philippians 2 verse, I think it's 10, 11, talks about how He gives us the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. That doesn't mean that we're not going to suffer the consequences of other people around us. That doesn't mean we're not going to suffer the consequences of the evil one who's trying to influence 
uh, things in the world. It doesn't mean that there isn't going to still be pain, but what it does mean is that it's not hopeless. I feel like someone here needs to hear that what you're dealing with, what you are wrestling over, what you're struggling with, that, that recurring pattern, that addiction, if you will trust God, and by trust I mean begin, try, try growing in trusting God, try growing and obeying God. Spiritually speaking, that power is broken. There will still be an enormous amount of effort involved because in most cases, in fact, if that's the background you're coming from, there will absolutely be a reprogramming of the mind. Romans 12 verse 1 talks about renewing our minds. In more modern uh, literature, so like over the last 10, 20 years, we become far more aware of neuroplasticity and basically literally rewiring our, our brains towards habits and what we value and how we, how we respond to things. So there is that side of things. But I'm telling you that spiritually, Satan cannot do anything to you without God's permission. And if he gives permission, it is because he has a good plan. He wants something good to come out of it. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says, One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. I want, to note, I want you to note two things. One, he's referred to as the accuser. Also in the passage that we read previously in Luke chapter 4, verse 5, he's referred to as the devil. I'll come back to that in a moment. Secondly, we're not reading that now, but if you know the story of Job, you can literally just go and read chapter 1. It's a little bit hectic, I must warn you. The Bible's not boring. Satan appears before God and asks him for permission. I just want to be clear. He cannot do anything to you without God's permission. And if God gives that permission, it's because he has good that he wants to come out of that. But let's go back to the devil, the accuser. Scripture also calls him the Satan, the deceiver, the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the great dragon, the ancient serpent. What I want you to notice is that it's a title, not a name. When, when we hear the term Satan or devil, it should actually be the Satan, the Satan, or the devil, which the, the word devil is actually diabolos, which means the slanderer or the accuser. He is the deceiver. These are things that describe who he is. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking and referring to the devil, and he says that when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He's saying he is the deceiver. In fact, he's the father of deception. Now, the reason that I'm harping on this, and again, if you're visiting, come back next week. It gets better, okay? Is that unless we understand his primary strategy, we're just swatting flies. We're just playing marbles. I don't know if kids know what that is anymore, but like it's something that you do that's not on a screen. <laughs> Although I'm guessing that there's an app that you can play marbles on your device as well. I don't know. Please hear what I'm about to say. I don't say this lightly. I think that the vast majority, the vast majority, like 95%, this is my opinion. I don't have a scripture to quote. I'm telling you my opinion is that the vast majority, like 95% of the enemy's strategy against you and against me is deception. We think it's to make us dirty, to make us addicted, to make us perverted, to make us ugly. To make... 
Sure, but that's, that's on the surface. Underneath it all, it is to convince us to mistrust God and to trust that doing whatever it is that I'm tempted to do is going to bring me joy, fulfillment, happiness, contentment. Again, if you're a Christian, he cannot make you do anything, but he will do everything he can to try and convince or deceive, to, to, to entice us with things that will promise us what it actually can't deliver when actually God's way, God's plan is the one that can actually deliver. There's a term that <clears throat> was coined by the Russian military, the KGB, during the Cold War, so kind of around the 1950s, called disinformatia, or in the English translation, it became known as disinformation. It was all about throwing the cat amongst the pigeons, uh, confusing, deceiving, uh, misaligning people through propaganda. The KGB began to flood the war during this time with lies, half-truths, and propaganda placing high-level spies in key roles in Western media, journalism, and entertainment partially to advance their agenda, by, by, sorry, partially to advance their agenda, but partially just to throw off the equilibrium of the West to keep us chasing our tails, draining our energy, and most importantly, blind to Russia's activity behind the Iron Curtain. I just want to point out, if I make re reference to Russia, I'm not talking about every Russian person, every Russian citizen, I'm talking about people that are you know, in power and authority. Those of you that are a little bit older might remember the name Gary Kasparov. He was the world chess champion and a Russian democracy advocate who now lives in exile in Croatia. He described it this way. The point of modern propaganda isn't only to misinform or push an agenda, it is to exhaust your critical thinking and annihilate the truth. That's hectic. When, when there's smoke and mirrors, when there's deception, when, there's, when there are half-truths and mostly truths, but there's a 5%, it is exhaust. Has anyone found the last few years online to be exhausting in trying to identify what's true, what's not true? I won't even go into COVID and pro-vaccination and, and anti-vaccination. I'm just, all I, will, all I will identify is that there were very different opinions. And it wasn't, and the camps weren't what you thought they would be. I know, I have friends in America that are no longer friends. They were best friends because of their differing views politically. They're in the same church. It is so hard nowadays to actually try and find reliable information, reliable media, because for whatever, whatever can be proved, it can kind of be disproved. And when, and when you have medical personnel telling you this is what you have to do, well, then we seem to find other medical personnel who tell you that you're being lied to. Anyone find that exhausting? Okay. So is it possible that this is just a minor human manifestation, application, example of what is actually a very strategic spiritual strategy by the enemy where he wants to deceive us, trick us, exhaust us. Because when you're exhausted, yeah, I was like, it is hot. You just, I was like, whatever, I don't even care anymore. It's like, just, 
Do what you want to do. Because it is so tiring. To give you a practical example, there was a rally organized in Houston, Texas a few years ago during, during the previous election cycle. If you remember much about that, there was a lot of animosity between various sides and around foreigners and refugees and, and Muslims and just basically anything that people could find to, to, to cause you know, one another to argue. Like it, it was highlighted. It was like someone just, just poured fuel on that fire. So there was this particular protest that was arranged in the city of Houston, which, by the way, is a significant city. It's not a small city in America. It is a massive, influential city. So a, a protest was organized to stop Islamification of Texas. Of course, there's going to be a response. So then there was a counter-protest arranged to save Islamic knowledge. It was only sometime after the election when there were Senate hearings on the influence of Russian hackers that they discovered that both of these groups that were formed on Facebook were formed by Russians. It had nothing to do with any American. It had nothing to do with anyone that was pro or anti-Muslim. It was just to keep people busy and distracted. Is this starting to like ring bells? For you? Is it possible that sometimes who you consider to be the enemy is not the real enemy? Is it possible that sometimes when we you know, doubt God's plan that, that maybe there's someone behind that that's trying to distract and tire us out and convince us? Again, I think I mentioned earlier that John Malcolm makes reference to the world of flesh and the devil, and, and he describes it this way, that Satan's strategy is to use deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in sinful society. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. Let's, let's take a simple example, okay? Any Chuckles fans? Chuckles from Willie's? Willie's? Chuckles? Chuckles? I met someone earlier who didn't even know what Chuckles was. I'm like, changing your life right now. No, no, no. Okay. I, I cannot promote Chuckles, but I'm just telling you, I have a disordered desire when it comes to Chuckles. It is packed full of goodness and sugar and you know, all kinds of other stuff. I have a disordered desire. I want it. I, I like the feeling that it gives me, briefly. Not the way I'll feel the next day or whatever, but, but in that moment, there's a, there's a disordered desire. The, the deceptive idea is you're going to feel good. Now, there's, there is truth in it because if you've ever eaten a chuckle <laughs> where you've allowed it to chill a little bit in the fridge first, like just a little bit, not too hard, just like, just that there's a bit of a crunch, like a, you know, it's like, there's truth. It's going to feel and taste good. But that's really only a part truth because sugar isn't good for me. Sugar isn't going to help me in my health. Now, now, what adds to it is that for many years, until recently, uh, full disclosure, obviously, we know that this has changed dramatically over the last several years that we, there's far more awareness to sugar and, and, and there's far more you know, caution around it. But, but growing up, 
This was normalized. Anyone remember those bar one advertisements when you still used to watch TV? Anyone, anyone remember when you used to watch TV and you had to like sit through the ads and all this? And they would have these bar one adver advertisements and they had like firefighters, um, like changing, you know, saving lives and changing the world because they had a bar one, chocolate. <laughs> or those of you that are old enough to remember all the cigarette ad advertisements on TV, at the movies, etc. Like you were, there was no awful looking, plump, fat, chubby, like, you know, guy on a couch. He was on a horse. He looked, he was chiseled, man. He was like, he had a six pack. It was, it was normalized until, until, you know, it wasn't. How much have we just accepted as being normalized by the world? When it comes to greed or materialism, descriptions or definitions of sexual fulfillment or gender identity, how you deserve to be happy. And so if your wife doesn't make you happy or your husband doesn't make you happy right now, or frankly, it goes to the level in your mind that if your kids don't make you happy, like, well, you're made to be happy. And, and, and we idolize happiness. The world idolizes the good life. It is a deceptive idea that is being played to a disordered desire that is being normalized by sinful society. Are you seeing the strategy here? And it's not about like arbitrary stuff like Elvis is alive. You're like, oh, who cares? It's not, it's not like weird random stuff. It'll be subtle. What you deserve. You deserve better. You deserve to be happy. You deserve to be valued. You deserve to be respected. And there, there's truth in it. Again, I want to be clear. The most powerful lie is the one that is 95% true. The production team have been deeply impacted by that <laughs> statement. Thank you, Shanice. I don't feel heavy, I mean I do, but, uh, but I don't feel heavy, I, but, I, but I am feeling a burden to get this across. I'm telling you, for all of us, myself included, our lives are so deeply influenced by subtle lies that are 95% true. And there's a short term, you know, kind of return a guarantee, but then there's a long-term disappointment. If he can convince us to mistrust God, if he can deceive subtly, just question the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the wisdom of God, <laughs> it's almost game over. Adam and Eve who, by the way, the, the, Adam was not a name. It was a description. Eve was not a name. It was a description. Adam meant human. Eve meant life. That's why you will never read those names, Adam or Eve, again in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. Human life. The way that human life was distorted and affected 
was when the devil came in the form of a serpent. He didn't come with a weapon. He didn't come with disease. He came with a question. Did God really say? That was it. That's all he needed to do. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the fruit? Now Eve, to her credit, actually corrects him. No, no, no. He just said we can't eat from that tree. But then he convinces her that it's going to fulfill her. It's going to make life better. You will know good and evil. God's trying to keep something from you. My prayer is that, is that right now, even in this moment, that God, by His grace, through His Spirit, who is available to all of us, would maybe bring to our attention in this moment a single example of a subtle, convincing lie that the enemy's been trying to use to cause us to question God's plan, God's heart, God's goodness, God's faithfulness. Can I ask you just to close your eyes for a few moments? I just want to ask you to ask God, is there anything that you're wanting to bring to my attention right now? Something that maybe you haven't even realized you've been believing or wrestling over. But where actually it's been a subtle, gentle, systematic, consistent attempt to actually deceive you. My prayer during worship this morning was just, God, please. Like when we're singing that song, Break the Chains, like we, because most of the chains are, are lies. They, they're deception. God, if there's, if there's a lie that people here are believing, that individuals are believing, God, would you break, would you break that chain? For people that are listening to this as a podcast at a later stage, I want to encourage you to actually pause this and to ask God, Is there a lie? And I can almost guarantee you, I can, I, can, I can almost guarantee you that at the essence of the question, at the essence of the lie, it ultimately comes down to the goodness of God. Underneath it all, underneath everything, it's actually question the trustworthiness, the faithfulness, the goodness, and the kindness of God. And I get it. There are, man, I, I speak to more than enough people there are a lot of people that are carrying enormous amounts of pain. It is so easy to understand why that pain would cause you to question the goodness of God. I get it. I don't have cheap answers for you. We'll talk a little bit more about how we respond next week. I just want to tell you in the meantime that God does care. He does care. I, I know that just saying it doesn't make it so for you, but my prayer is that you would experience a sense, just a sense, a sense of God looking at you, a sense that you're not alone, a sense that God does care, a sense that He is trustworthy, a sense that He is good even when everything around you 
looks as though that can't be true. And by the way, you only have to walk a few hundred meters away from our church to see a lot of suffering, a lot of pain, a lot of inequality. The consequences of people's choices, of greed, of monopolization, of materialism, of corruption. It's around us all the time. But what affects us most is the stuff that starts happening inside of us. Where the goodness of God is placed into doubt. So my prayer, just as your eyes are closed for a few moments, is that where you're needing to be made aware of the kindness and the goodness of God, that you would experience that right now. I know I can't convince you academically. God, where people are needing just a sense of your compassion. God, would you help people to sense that? I, I don't know what the deep, personal, meaningful, spiritual expression of this would be, but God, where, where people are needing a hug in physicality, God, I just pray that they would have a sense of your embrace. And God, where you are bringing to our attention a lie that we've been believing. God, help us to dare to trust you. God, would you bring back to memory a truth that we've heard before or maybe a scripture that we've read before where it would combat that lie. Even, even something that's got so much truth in it but it's being used to actually convince and distort your intention. God, would you bring us clarity? Bring us clear minds, God. Bring us clear minds. And Father, would you help us to experience the fact that you actually do care for us, that we can give you our worries, that we can give you our cares, God, that we can pray the problem. We don't have to pray the solution. We don't have to be able to control the outcome. We can just be honest with you. We can, we can, we can lift our pain, our questions, our questions, 